0: Thank you for that, Joe, and uh, thank you guys for having me this morning and just here at the church. Um, my wife and I have been here about a year and a half, over a year and a half now, actually. We've got five months left maybe in our residency, and it has been just so wonderful. Um, we will be unspeakably sad to uh, say goodbye if that's where God leads us in the future. So uh, I've been grateful to be here at College Park, grateful to have this chance this morning to be with you guys and discuss this incredible passage. So let's pray now to start us off. Lord God, this is a, a just an incredible message, an incredible passage that you have given us this morning. And I'm grateful for the chance to, um, to explore it, to see what it has to say to us as a church here this morning. Um, God, there is a, a really beautiful promise at the center of this passage. And I pray that as we look at it today, that promise would be clear to us and would be beautiful to us in a way that we would want it. And, God, there's also a beautiful person who stands at the center of this passage. He's the key to that promise. And so, God, I pray today that as we look at the promise in this passage, that you would guide our affections not just to, oh, that's a great idea, that would be wonderful, but to the person who holds the door, who holds the key to this, to Jesus Christ, and that we would know him better and want to glorify him more at the end of this time. And we pray these things in his powerful name. Amen. So I want you to imagine something with me as we start off today. I want you to imagine that you're 14 years old and your parents have promised you that on your 16th birthday, when you get your driver's license, they're going to buy you your affordable dream car. So the car that is within reason, but is the car that you've always wanted. Uh, For me at 14, that was a cloth top Jeep Wrangler lifted about six inches because I'm from Mississippi and all Southerners are a little bit redneck at heart. So that was my dream car. So you're 14 years old, you're looking ahead to your 16th birthday, you can't wait for this car to get here. So 15 rolls around, you know, 15's great, you get your driver's permit, start to learn to drive, that's nice. But you come back from uh, getting your learner's permit, and in the driveway waiting for you is that Jeep Wrangler. That dream car is in your driveway, your parents have bought it for you. And they tell you, when you're 16, and you get your license you will be able to enjoy this car in full. You will have the freedom to drive. You will have the freedom to go where you want, to drive by yourself. You're going to have the full enjoyment then. But between now and then, between 15 and 16, we're going to let you begin enjoying the car now. So you're going to drive with one of us in the car. You can't drive it by yourself. You have your restrictions imposed by the permit, but you can start enjoying this dream. So the total fulfillment is in the future. It's on your 16th birthday, but you can start enjoying it right now in this time in this year. Wouldn't that be incredible? Incredible. And so not only are you still looking ahead to the time when you have the total freedom to enjoy the car on your 16th birthday, but you have all of your 15th birthday to start driving it, to get to know it, and to feel the thrill of being behind the wheel of this thing, you know, granted with your parent beside you, and that's not total freedom, that's not the best, but it's still something. You get to start enjoying it. Now, the Advent season, which is what we're at the tail end of right now, is a time where Christians really remind ourselves that we live sort of in that tension right there we call it the already and the not yet tension see advent is a season of longing see for the jews all the promises of god in the old testament all the things that god was going to do lay in the future so one day the messiah is going to come back god is going to establish a just world he's going to restore the creation he's going to cleanse the hearts of his people he's going to forgive their sins that's all going to happen on their 16th birthday that's a 16th birthday present. And Advent is a season of longing where we remind ourselves that we're not done We're still waiting for God to come back and finish that work. So it's a season of longing But it's not just a season of longing It's a season of celebration as well because in one of the biggest surprises of history God started breaking his promises into the world before the 16th birthday Jesus's birth was the 15th birthday of the world so to speak because in it, Jesus brought the presence of God before the promises were all fulfilled. He made it possible to be forgiven of sin before the end of time. He made it possible for us to start living in a real relationship with God, for us to be uh, living as restored humankind right now on earth while we still look forward to that future fulfillment. And so Advent isn't just a season of longing for what's going to happen. It's a season of celebration for what God has done. That already-not-yet tension fills this text. It guides our discussion of it. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we dig in. So, so far, uh, we've looked at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 11. And Isaiah has been kind of like a filmmaker who's given us 45 minutes on one figure. So the whole, all five verses focus on this one person of the Messiah. All the, the pronouns are he, his, him... It's all about his life, what he's going to do, who he is. And then it's like 45 minutes into the film, halfway through the passage, God or Isaiah cuts away. And now we're looking at some animals in a the field. There's wolves and there's lambs and leopards and goats. It's a little strange. You know, it's like, I was, I was interested in the king. I want to find out more about the king. What's the, the A to B connection here between the king and a bunch of animals? But as we're going to see, Isaiah cuts away to the animals. He cuts away to this, this interesting vision. And then he's going to use that to lead us back to see the king again. And when we do see him, we're going to see him in a clearer and more beautiful light than before. It's going to deepen our appreciation and our admiration for this king. So. The first thing that this passage teaches us, that it has for us, and this is going to be the longest section of the sermon, so don't worry if we're going a little long and we're still in section one. I know that, and I know that sections two or three are shorter. Some people are anxious about that. The first passage, the first thing we're going to study in this passage, is uh, we're going to look at what exactly God is promising. What's going on here? If you're a note taker and you want a heading, you could call this the what. So this is verse six through the first half of verse nine. And to understand the what, to understand what's going on here, um, just like if we want to see a diamond in all its glory and all its beauty, we set it against a black background so its brightness stands out more. Uh, first, we need to paint kind of the, the black background of this passage against which these promises shine more clearly. And that problem, that black background, is something that every religion and every thought system in the world agrees on. It's the fact that something is wrong with the world. Uh, This is something that we don't. No one really has to prove. Uh, No one's arguing against the fact that there's that things aren't perfect. That there's something going on. You know, I shopped around online a little bit, and I couldn't find anywhere something like a church of everything is awesome. It's like there's no one out there who's saying, this is it. We've arrived. It doesn't get any better than this. So we all agree there's something going on. We disagree about what that is and what the solution is. You may think it's greed or you may think it's if you're a Freudian, suppressed childhood desires or Republicans. But there's something. There's something broken in the world. We all know that. And we're trying to figure out why. Right. And this includes both small things and big things. So it's everything from, I followed the recipe on my cookie package, but I got a bunch of charcoal out of the oven. You know, it's like, what's the deal? Why did this happen? Uh, and it goes up to, uh, yeah, it's a small silly analogy, that it goes up to you know, the Ebola virus that is uh, invading Africa right now and that we're starting to get a handle on. But this, this massive disease outbreak um, is part of the brokenness of the world that's going on and that shouldn't be going on. It also encompasses both human choices and natural phenomenon. So this is uh, genocide. This is bad things, evil things that people do. It also includes uh, tsunamis. So it's something that's just part of the the way the world works. The nature of the weather creates these weather patterns that are destructive and harmful. And you know, it's not just human choices outside myself. If I'm honest then it's like i have plenty of this brokenness inside myself as well you know this this stubborn selfishness that uh even on christmas makes me get angry with my family for stupid reasons you know and i know it's dumb i know it's wrong but there's something broken there's something going on in the world and it seems pervasive so the further down we look the deeper we go it seems like futility and frustration um you know, evil and death are somehow wired in to the DNA of creation. At its essential nature, there's something wrong with the world. There's something broken. We have to start there. And paradoxically, we know, on the one hand, when we're faced with these things, like my my grandfather died unexpectedly uh, this March, earlier this year. He'd been in uh, ailing health, but uh, it just all of a sudden... Uh, he passed out and his heart gave out and he died. Um, when, I, when I was faced with that, uh, he was old and he was sick, but I still had this intuitive feeling the world's not supposed to be that way. You know, that wasn't supposed to happen. That doesn't belong. So we have the sense when we're faced with the curse of the world, when we're faced with the brokenness of the world, that doesn't belong. That's not the way it's supposed to be. On the other hand, at the same time, paradoxically, even though I know and I feel that that isn't the way it's supposed to be, it's just the way things are. I know that people die and that nothing we've been able to do with medical technology has changed that. I know that natural disasters and diseases happen and we can mitigate against those. We can fight those, but they still happen. This brokenness isn't the way it's supposed to be, but it is the way it is. And the biblical story actually tells us that both of those things are true that the world is corrupted from the inside out, from the DNA out. There is brokenness. There's something wrong in the world. At the same time, if we look back to the beginning of the story, that isn't the way it was supposed to be. That's not the way God wired the world. So if you're a materialist and you think this matter is all there is, the universe just exists and it's just Proceeding along according to its rules, then you have to say that death and destruction are wired into the way the world is. That's just a corollary to life. Um, The biblical story isn't doesn't say that. If we look at Genesis three, we see that the curse of sin, that all of this frustration, futility, decay and death come as a product of God's curse on sin of God's curse on sin. Um, some specific things that are listed in Genesis 3. One, uh, pain enters the world. So childbearing becomes painful for women. Labor and toil becomes uh, painful and difficult for men. So uh, the natural um, processes of human life, work and reproduction, become painful. Human relationships become marred by a sinful power struggle. So husband and wife people who should be one flesh who should be the most unified people couple in the world uh, become set against one another and have this desire to struggle for power for one to dominate and own the other Uh, the earth brings forth thorns and thistles rather than good edible fruit so the creation becomes cursed with this futility that instead of bearing fruit like a garden like it's supposed to it bears thorns it bears things that hurt us that we can't eat and then finally death pervades the world Uh, Adam and Eve die. Um, The first man born into the new world, Cain, murders the second man born into the new world. Death death corrupts even the the first uh, created relationship outside of the garden. um, It pervades the world from here out. And there are some three verses that specifically illustrate this. One, Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he said sin came into the world through one man. Death came through sin, and it spread to all the world. Death has pervaded the world. Or Ecclesiastes 1.8, which is a great upper Christmas text. um, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So it says that, In the wrong mode, everything in life just doesn't satisfy us. It's kind of, you know, we take it in and experience is nice, but it doesn't satisfy. And then maybe the clearest picture, the most vivid picture is from Romans 8. I'm going to read kind of the selection from verses 20 to 22. Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility in bondage to corruption. And then he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the creation has been subjected in bondage to corruption. And it's groaning like a woman in childbirth. It's groaning like uh, in labor pains. The creation groans under the curse. It groans under its brokenness. And when we come in contact with the curse, when it crashes into our lives in some form, then we groan inwardly as well. We resonate with that groaning. We feel that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's a lot. There's a big thing that we're still waiting for in the not yet we're waiting for out there. So that's the black background against which this text shines. And so let's look now at the promise of this scripture, at what God is promising to do in light of this black background. So this text, Isaiah gives us three threads that run through verses six to nine, and we're going to look at each thread individually and then kind of weave them together to show the, the picture that they, um, that they tell. So thread number one, the first thing that we see through this passage is that God is going, God's promise is going to affect creation from the DNA out. So verses 1 to 5, especially verse 4, um, we see the Messiah dealing with human injustice and human wickedness. He's going to put an end to the consequences of those choices. He's going to put an end to the people who choose evil. That's good. That's a good thing. But if that was all he did, then that would be nice. We'd have world peace in a sense. But we would still sicken. We would still weaken. We would still die. There's something still broken in the world. Isaiah switches, I think, from human images to animal ones because he wants to show that God's not just changing the things that people choose to do. He's changing the way that the world works in its deepest being. So, wolves by nature attack and kill lambs. Um, lions by nature will attack cattle and eat them if they can. Snakes by nature will bite if they feel threatened. You know, we can restrain nature by building fences and walls, that kind of thing. Uh, sometimes we can retrain nature. It's sort of possible to tame lions and tigers. Um, as we know that that doesn't always work out, but, um, you know, we can do a little bit to restrain or retrain nature, but we can't change it. We can't change the essential nature of a lion or the essential nature of a snake out in the wild. God promises here that he's going to transform the very nature of the world. The most fundamental levels from which things work. That's this promise. So enemies, wolves and lambs, will lie down together. They'll become friends. Predators that live by attacking and eating other animals. They'll become grazers. They'll become creatures of peace. And threats, the snakes that hide in the holes of the world, will become neutralized. Either they won't bite or their bite won't have the power to hurt one day. That's the prom- That's part of the promise here, is that from the DNA out, the creation is going to be transformed. Now, this is good news for us, because whether we feel safe or not, um, in America, we're in one of the, the safest countries and one of the safest times for someone in all of history. So we may think, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not worried about lions and snakes, that kind of stuff. But whether you feel safe or not, we live in a dangerous world. Um, we wash our hands because there's the threat of disease that's always kind of lurking, and this is flu seasons. So we're even a little more leery of it than usual. You know, we have uh, passwords and burglar alarms because our stuff can be stolen, our things can be taken, our information can be taken from pe- by other people and used to hurt us. So we have to we have those those uh, safeguards. You know, we have seat belts and all these car safety things because uh, cars wreck and they break down, and that's not always. That's not something we choose to do. You know, those things can just happen because of the nature of cars or the nature of other drivers. We live in an unsafe world and we have to take precautions to guard and mitigate against the world's dangers in this life. There are threats that are just part of the way things work. But this is a promise that all of those threats... All of those inherently dangerous things are somehow going to be transformed so that they have no more power over us. They're no longer threats to us. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. But if there are cars in the new creation, either they're not going to crash or if they do crash, no one's going to get hurt. Um, you know, if there are snakes in the new creation, they're not going to bite or their bite's not going to have any harm on us. The threats, the dangers that are wired into the DNA of the world are going to disappear. In Jesus's life, he performed miracles that are actually foretastes of this promise. See, the fact that he could heal disease with a word means that he could take that threat of disease and just wish it away. Just pluck it out and throw it away. Um, the fact that he could cast out demons or heal bread or, um, you know, multiply food like bread meant that the evils of starvation and the spiritual evils like demon possession, he could just put an end to them. He could remove threats. Uh, he even r- uh, resurrected a few people. He raised a few people from the dead, which showed that the threat of death is just gone in his kingdom. He makes it so that those things have no power when, they're, when we live in God's promise, when God's promise comes true. The, those things don't characterize the world now. You know, We're still looking ahead to the fulfillment of those times. But he showed us that it was possible. He showed us the nature of the promise And that's a good thing. That's a great promise. So it's good news for that reason. It's also good news for us because human nature is as broken as animal nature. Now, lions by nature attack and kill prey. They are predators. But if we're honest with ourselves, human nature is broken in a way that is very similar, that we can be just as prone to selfishness and sin, to using other people for selfish ends, as uh, as an animal that eats someone. Um, You know, we see this when marriages turn toxic and spouses start hating one another, trying to control or abuse or manipulate one another. Um, We see this in um, old institutions of slavery. There was race-based slavery in the U.S. for a while. Their sex slavery is still pervasive in the world today where people are abusing other people for selfish ends. And even me, you know, the way that I, I can try to get things from my wife, try to talk to my wife in a way that manipulates her or that dominates her or that uses her for selfish ends rather than loving her. And I don't have to teach myself to do that. You know, it's if you don't have, if you have a toddler, if you've ever had a toddler, you didn't have to teach them to be selfish, to steal things and to lie when they're caught. You know, it's like that comes naturally. We have to teach them not to do those things because there's something in human nature that is broken, that is corrupt. Now, all the the physical fulfillment of these promises, the physical redemption of the world from the DNA out lies in the future. But the already of the kingdom, one thing that God has broken into the world is that in salvation, in God's kingdom, God starts a present spiritual transformation in our hearts from the DNA out. So God doesn't make me immune to disease in this lifetime, but he's starting to transform me into the image of his son, Jesus, He's starting to sanctify me and make me holy so that from the DNA out, my heart is different from it was when I first came to Christ in 2006. I'm not the same person that I used to be because God has been at work changing my heart. He's transforming me from the DNA out. That's a present spiritual foretaste of the promised future fulfillment. That has already begun. And if this is something you want if there is some kind of spiritual DNA renovation that you're looking for, this is where it is. It's in God's promise, and it's in his kingdom. That's thread one, is that the creation is going to be transformed from the DNA out. Thread number two is that this transformation specifically involves an end to violence and fear. Now, we looked a couple of weeks ago. Um, in Isaiah's time, when he was writing this, Judah, his kingdom, uh, lived very much in the reality of violence and fear. They were kind of like a lamb. They were a small kingdom that had two wolves on one side. So Israel and Syria had banded together and were pressuring them to join up or get invaded. And they had a bear on the other side of Assyria, this giant world power that was known for its cruelty and known for its oppression. And they were facing so much pressure from these wolves that they were thinking, well, maybe we should throw our lot in with the bear. You know, it's like at least he could beat up the wolves and take care of us violence and fear were very much a part of their lives modern americans you know we may not resonate with this because we're so safe but if you've ever lived in a war-torn region or you've ever lived in a crime-riddled neighborhood you know that when your world is characterized by violence when violence could break into your life at any time it creates fear it creates a, a very real sense of danger that you have to deal with and you have to live with and it's terrible So this passage tells us that sinful violence, not justice, but hostility and predation. Sinful violence is a mark of the fall. It's not a mark of God's original design. And humankind was made to fear God. So we're made to live in respect and reverence for him. We weren't made to have to fear anything else. We weren't supposed to have to fear anything but God. Fear and violence become part of the world. But God's restorative work is going to bring an end to the violence inherent in nature, including human nature. He's going to make it so that lions aren't predators anymore, so that bears don't attack, so that snakes don't attack. He's going to put an end to that violence. He's going to put an end to that fear. And he's going to put an end to the hostility that we can cultivate against other individuals and other groups of people. You know, whether that's racial or political or economic, we have this tendency to create kind of us-them kingdoms and clump up with the us's and reject all the them's. And we have this tendency to develop hostility in our hearts. You know, one of the already's of God's kingdom is that he breaks down those barriers within the kingdom. Within the church, there are rich and poor. There are black and white. There are Arab and Jew all under Christ. All united in him, we find a common ground that's deeper than our hostility. So the second thread of this promise, of this passage, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, is an end to violence and fear. The third and final thread is that this transformation replaces death and destruction with life and prosperity. So this passage so far is mainly focused on the removal of violence and fear. It's the removal of a negative thing. And that's because that's the reality that we're living in in that time. That's the message that Israel really needed to hear. But if you look at other examples of God's promise that are around the same kind of thing, other passages that speak to the same promise, it's not just about the removal of something negative. It's about the establishment of something positive. So debt, it's not just that death goes away. It's that death is replaced by abundant, eternal life. It's not just that destruction and hardship go away. They're replaced by abundance and prosperity and peace. Um, We see hints of this in the passage. Um, I think the little child is kind of our key. You know, it's not just that uh, the calf and the lion lion and the calf and the fattened calf will lay down together. A little child will be able to lead them. Um, There will be peace and security um, the nursing child can play over the hole of a snake without fear. So it's not just that fear's over; it's in place. There's prosperity and there's joy and peace. And if we look ahead to Revelation 21 and 22, which bring, which show the total fulfillment, the full fulfillment of this promise, it's, uh, God says He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. Death, mourning, sorrow, crying, pain—they're over. And in their place are abundance and prosperity and healing and the presence of God. That's the promise that from the DNA out one day, God is going to transform the creation so that he replaces violence and futility and death with abundance and prosperity and joy. That's the promise is this total restoration of the creation from the DNA out. That's the what. That's what God is offering us here. So this passage gives us the what, but it also gives us the next step. It tells us the how. So it doesn't just tell us what's going to happen. That's the restoration of creation. It tells us how it's going to happen. And that's found in verse 9b, the second half of verse 9. See, Isaiah says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little strange, maybe, that uh, it's like the end of violence, the establishment of prosperity is going to come through knowledge. You know, it sounds like education. We have to educate the animals and then they'll be OK. You know, it's like then they'll be better um, to understand what's going on. We have to realize that uh, Hebrew does this and English does it, too. We use the word no with two different senses. And if you're a Spanish speaker, you know there are actually two different words to describe the two kinds of knowing we're about to talk about. The first kind of knowing is just, it's an awareness of a fact. You know, it's like, I know the capital of the United States. I don't know the capital of Yemen. So I'm aware of the one fact. I'm unaware of the other fact. I know the one and not the other. Um, but there's a second kind of knowledge that's a, a deep, intimate, relational knowledge that's more like familiarity. So I can say, I know who Andrew Luck is. You know, I could probably pick him out of a lineup. If I saw him in the street, I would know, oh, that's Andrew Luck. Um, But if I waved to him and said, Andrew, what's up, man? You going to come over to my house later? He would have no idea who I was because I have no relationship with Andrew Luck. I don't know him in any real deep sense. He and I have never been present with one another. And so even though I know who he is, I can identify him. I don't know him because he's not present with me. I have no relationship with him. That's what this is talking about. This passage is saying that what the world needs is not factual awareness that there's a God and that he exists. It's this deep relational knowledge of being in a relationship with God that's like a relationship between a husband and a wife. That's deep and intimate and personal. The creation needs God's presence. Um, Isaiah uses this term. And second corinthians uses it as well of the idea that there is a veil That's been cast over the creation as part of the curse. It's a veil in isaiah. It's a veil of death Uh, In second corinthians. It's a veil of ignorance but There is some sense in which the world is uh, Has been rendered incapable of seeing and responding to god So that even though he's still everywhere he still fills it Um, It would be like a person born blind who's never been told about clouds. The clouds have always been there, but they're effectually absent from that person. That person is ignorant of the clouds because they can't see them. Um, In that same way, though God is present in the world, he is effectually absent from a broken creation. He's he's not in relationship with it. He's not really present with it. Um, One really clear example of this is in Romans 121. We preached on this, you know months ago now Um, But paul is talking about lost gentiles and he says for although they knew god They did not honor him as god or give thanks to him But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened So there is a darkening that happens in sin That makes god effectively absent from a person's life that makes it so they can't see him They can't know him And he has no influence No effect over them. And when that absence happens, it's sort of like when light is absent from a space, it contributes to the growth of things like mold and mildew, funguses. When God is effectively absent from the creation, it contributes to the growth of decay and death and sin. So when God is not present, the creation decays. When he is present in this special way, the creation thrives. One of the clearest examples of this is in deuteronomy 28 um, You don't need to turn there But god has brought his people to the edge of the promised land to the edge of canaan He's about to take them over into it and he's kind of helping them define their relationship He's saying this is what our life is going to be like together sort of if this relationship is going to work And he gives them two options. He says option one if you keep my covenant If you maintain your relationship with me, if you keep me present with you effectively, he says, your land is going to look like a little slice of paradise. He says, your crops are going to grow and yield like they're supposed to. Uh, You're going to bear children and they're not going to be born into death. They're going to grow and thrive. Your animals are going to produce. You're going to be protected. You're going to have life and abundance and prosperity. Your world will be a little paradise if you stay faithful to me. But then he says in the second half of the chapter, if you're unfaithful to me, though, then I'm going to remove my presence from you. And in that, all the curses of creation are going to grow and they're going to grow richly. So you're going to fall into further and further sin. You're going to lose the productivity of your land. You're going to lose the increase of your flocks and your field and your families. Um, The curse is going to spread if I am absent. Now, that's not that doesn't apply for us today uh, the prosperity gospel says that god works exactly that same way today that mixes up god's timing that's not what we're talking about but in that season of israel's history god offered them a chance to have a paradise if they would keep their knowledge of him if they would stay present with him and we know they didn't so this is the how and it has two applications for us it has two things that it teaches us the first is that our ultimate hope is in God bringing his presence back to the world. What we really need to see the curse removed, what we really need if we're going to see the promises of the first section fulfilled, um, isn't more research, it isn't more medicine, it isn't more technology, more education. It's God's presence coming back to heal the world. We can push against the effects of the fall, we can fight back against it, and that's good. But the curse still obtains. The curse still rules creation. And all the best we can do is temporarily stay it. And what we need, our ultimate only hope, is the presence of God, the effective presence of God coming back into the world. The second application that this has is that paradise begins with a relationship with God. So when God enters a human heart, and when a human enters God's kingdom... Um, Again, the, the physical reality doesn't change necessarily. God may bring miraculous healings. He might do that. But God definitely does start a work of spiritual healing and spiritual transformation that turns a person from the sinner they were into the glorious creature they were supposed to be and they were always created to be paradise begins with a relationship with god and if we want this fulfillment if we want this joy this abundance this prosperity it begins spiritually here it begins by being present with god by being in prayer in relationship with him by being in his word letting him speak to us by being in worship by being in obedience in those things as we live in relationship with god our hearts are transformed one in line with these promises but two, we start to feel the joy of heaven and we start to know the joy of the new creation. Paradise begins with a relationship with him. This is summarized and captured really well by 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I'm going to read that in full. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So when the veil is removed and God becomes effectively present with a people, when he becomes visible to us by faith and we see and worship him, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Paradise begins with a relationship with God. The power of restoration to so the power of the promise we looked at lies in the presence of God. That's the how. How? And then finally, verse 10 gives us not just the what, what's going to happen, not just the how, how it's going to happen, but it gives us a who. It tells us who's the one who makes it possible for all these things to happen that we've been looking at. So verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So now we've, we've seen our animals in the field, and Isaiah has brought us back to the figure of the Messiah where we started. Um, in verse 1, he was the branch of Jesse, which means that he was a descendant of Jesse. He came after him. Now we see in verse 10, he's the root of Jesse. Somehow he comes before his ancestor as well. Um, that would have been kind of a head-scratcher. That was a puzzler to uh, to the Old Testament because they didn't see in full Um, Jesus' incarnation, the fact that God, who is the origin of all life, including Jesse, became a human being and was born into the line of Jesse, is the one solution to that. How could someone be both the ancestor and the descendant of a person? Only if he's both God and human. So that's Jesus Christ. And when the final restoration happens, when this promise comes to fulfillment, Jesus is going to stand in glory for all the world to see. So not just Jews, not just the Old Testament of people, people of God. It says that all the nations will inquire after him. They will seek him out. They'll know where he is. They'll come to him. They'll want to be in his presence. They'll want to worship him. They'll want to see him and know him and savor him because his resting place will be glorious. Um, He will dwell in a way that exerts a gravitational pull on our affections and our attention. That's what glory is. In Hebrew, it's kind of like the word weight. And so uh, a glorious being is a weighty being. Jesus's resting place is going to be glorious. And we come to him at last. You know, he is the who for this whole thing, for this promise, because sinful, broken humankind can't handle the presence of God. Just like dry twigs can 't handle a fire they 're burnt up and consumed in the Bible. we see a few instances where people really see the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God, and their reaction isn 't what you 'd expect it isn 't celebration it isn 't uh, happiness it 's usually something like i 'm a dead man so Isaiah saw this in chapter six of his passage. he got a vision of the holiness of God, and he he said he said Woe is me, which means I'm dead uh, because I'm sinful and I live among a sinful people. Peter saw Jesus demonstrate his absolute power over the creation in a miracle where Jesus brought a massive amount of fish to Peter's net. Um, you know, we heard that story so many times in Sunday school. It's not that big a deal. It sounds like, OK, great. You know, Jesus can call fish. Um But when Peter, Peter understands what's going on because he falls to his knees and he says, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And when Jesus displays his power over creation, when he displays his divinity, Peter falls to his knees and says, I'm dead. Please leave me alone. I can't bear the weight of your glory. That's the, that's the truth of scripture. When we see God for who he is, we realize how uh, sinful and broken we are. And when we see ourselves clearly, we know we can't handle God's glory on our own without help. Jesus brought the presence of God into the world by becoming a human being. So he took a bit of the creation. He took broken, cursed human nature, and he joined it to his divine nature. He became both God and man so that he could start redeeming humankind from the curse. His perfect, pure life was the first human life that was ever lived without sin, that was ever lived without any problem, without any disobedience to God. And he died on the cross for our sins. So he made it possible for humankind to be cleansed. And then in his death, he made it possible for you and me, for present sinful human beings to be cleansed by being forgiven of sin, by being granted righteousness by grace through faith, by being brought into God's presence. And when he rose from the dead when he ascended into heaven He said that he would send his holy spirit He would send the presence of god the third person of the trinity into our hearts He said that I will be present with you through the spirit So jesus made it possible for our hearts to be cleansed He made it possible for us to be become temples where god could dwell where we couldn't before because we would have been consumed so he he uh, He did a work of spiritual alchemy, so to speak, where he turned the garbage of our hearts, the garbage of sinful nature into incorruptible gold. And in that way, God could be present with humankind and humankind could one day be present with God. So he is the one hope that we have for the future. He is the one way by which we can see the fulfillment of these promises. So to summarize the power of restoration we've talked about lies in the presence of God, which comes through the person of Jesus. The power of restoration lies in the presence of God, which comes through the person of Jesus. And if you have in, if any of the things that I've said today appeal to you at all, if you have any desire for the promises we've looked at, I would incur, I would urge you, Jesus is the key to that. He's the one place where the fulfillment of these promises can be found. in part now, and in fulfillment one day. And we can have a relationship with him through faith. He can stand in faith in our hearts through his Holy Spirit, through the salvation he offers. And if you don't have that today, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I pray, I pray that you would come talk to me, come talk to one of the people who's going to be standing up here at end of service to, um, so they can talk with you, so we can talk with you more about what that means. Because that is the most beautiful thing. He is the most beautiful thing that could happen to a human being. Let's pray to close. Lord Jesus, you are the key to the new creation. You are the door through which we enter into God's kingdom. And we are so grateful, so thankful for your work and so in awe of your grace that you would take on sinful humanity and redeem it and make it possible for us to be the people that you created us to be. So I pray today that all of us would be encouraged by uh, seeing you in this verse. I pray that we would come to walk in your presence to live in relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that that you would hasten the day where you fulfill these promises and bring your kingdom back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate your work. God bless you, brother. As you leave today and as you scatter into the world for another six days and become our greatest avenue of evangelism and missional living in the world, you realize you do more in the next five days than we could do collectively or organizationally here on this campus. I want you to be reminded of what um, Revelation 21 says in the image, the vision that uh, the Apostle John gives us. It says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So be the kind of people this week that live in light of Isaiah 11 and let God be the God who rules your life. So scatter into the world and bring the gospel, the good news to people who so desperately need it. Thanks for coming today College Park. I love you. God bless you. Have a great day.